Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. With party conferences around the corner and a new PM, eyes will be on changes in the polls. But how should we interpret them? Who better to unpack that for us than Mark Pack, author of the book Polling Unpacked and Lib Dem President? Mark, welcome. And perhaps for listeners, you could introduce yourself. Thanks very much. It's lovely to join you on the show. Um, As you said, I'm president of the Liberal Democrats, which is one of the more obscure political roles, I guess, in British politics. Um, What it means is um, it's a volunteer post and it means I chair the party's board. So for those who aren't so familiar with how political parties work, it's a bit like being the chair of the board of trustees. So a different role from the party leader, different role from our chief executive and more like, uh, you know, the, the sort of chair of trustees role you find in lots of other organisations. Wonderful. And and we're going to talk a bit about the, if you don't mind, the Lib Dem, mm. just as we segue in, because I think having you here would be remiss not to. Mm. Um, but the main topic of the day is is your book. And perhaps we'll get on that, on that in a second. Um, but tell us first about the mood in the Lib Dem. It feels pretty positive right now. Um, yeah, um, it definitely. Does. I mean, winning three parliamentary by-elections with huge swings from the Conservatives in around a year has obviously done a lot <laughs> for the party's overall mood. And yeah, particularly because those were you know genuinely spectacular results. I mean, you obviously expect anyone in any party to sort of talk up uh, you know their own results to to some extent. But if you take, for example, Tiverton and Holliton, the most recent of those three, there are parts of those, that constituency that had previously had a Conservative MP all the way back to before Queen Victoria was on the throne. Um, so really, you know, genuinely upending political convention with those that trio of victories, and so that's given the party a sort of big big boost alongside that has gone higher poll ratings and you know, we've had sort of gains in uh the may local elections last year just and then much more significant scale in the may local elections this year so there's lots of positive things but i think also perhaps more importantly even than than all of those metrics i think there's a sense that there's a real role for the party it's one of the really frustrating things I think if you're on a party like the Lib Dems, how the rest of the world seems to be saying all the time, well, what's the point of you or what's the point of you? Um, but I do think with politics at the moment, there absolutely is a sense of there is a role for a party that is uh, different from what Labour and Tories have to offer in England or the Nationalists as well, if you're thinking about Scotland and Wales. So, yeah, it's a much, much cheerier ship uh, than it was in the aftermath of the 2019 election and all that flowed from that. And it it feels like regions are very important in some of that because the the elections you mentioned with the big swings are broadly, I think, in the south of England, we'd say. And 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 do you think there are any particular reasons for that? Is there something about politics in the south that that the Lib Dems have tapped into recently? I don't think it's so much about it being southern England per se, but I think it's more about areas where the 
the sort of politics has in many ways been dominated by the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, we've managed to establish ourselves as the clear alternative to the Tories, yeah, that and and yeah, pushed in that sense Labour aside or displaced Labour. Um, and many of those areas are in southern England, but in a way, the distinguishing characteristic is that sort of nature of a two-party Conservative versus Lib Dem fight. Um, and hence, for example, you know, winning in the North North Shropshire, uh, which as the North in North Shropshire, I guess, gives a clue, is is you know, is in the Midlands rather than than in, in southern England. And I think what that illustrates is I think a big challenge, even for the Conservative Party, you know, having dropped Boris Johnson and got a new prime minister in, is it's really unclear, I think, what the government's message is outside the Red Wall. And I was really struck by this uh, in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, the first of that, that run of three wins back last summer, where, you know, talking to people who have been lifelong Tories, who were unhappy with the government, trying to persuade them to vote Lib Dem, it really felt like pushing at an open door because they were hearing the government say things about what it wanted to do in the Red Wall and whether or not, you know, you're persuaded by that. At least if you're in the Red Wall, there was a sense of there are some government policy policies and rhetoric directed at you, whether or not you happen to find it those persuasive. But for the rest of the country, it felt very much like the Tories are not really interested in in the sorts of places that have previously elected Tory MPs with huge majorities and the like. And I think that's one of the real challenges. It'll be fascinating um, and slightly scary, perhaps, to see how Liz Truss grapples with that, is Boris Johnson managed to put together a very disparate coalition and you know it was already beginning to fray uh in in the latter parts parts of his premiership and i it i find it really hard to see how liz truss is going to successfully keep that coalition together and again that's quite you know from a political point of view quite interesting and exciting for the lib dems because that provides you know a definite real opportunity for us now, I imagine there's a few cynics that you probably come across that will say, well, it looked pretty good before the 2019 election. Things look a little bit better, I think, even before the 2017 election. Mm. And things didn't quite pan out. So why would it be different in, well, probably 2024, 25? We don't know. Well, certainly we've had a couple of quite, well, three, I guess, quite disappointing general elections uh, you know, in recent years. Um, and you're right, absolutely, they no cause for complacency uh, in that sense on on the part of anyone in the, in the Liberal Democrats. But it's worth remembering we have had good election results as well, even if we have had you know, some bad ones uh, recently. And I think one of the things that's different from, say, the run up to 2019 is we've got a much broader based and more deeply rooted recovery this time. In the run up to 2019, there was a huge bubble of Lib Dem support uh, you know, that came from about a third of the way through that year. And what that meant was that in many places that we were, say, fighting in the 2019 election, there was staff who'd only just been employed. There was very little in terms of a volunteer uh, network of campaigners and so on. And in, you know, what we've been able to do since 2019 is a much more sort of considered and sort of consistent and more deeply rooted recovery process. So I think they're definitely a good reasons for optimism, but absolutely, if anyone's being complacent about that, you'd be quite right to sort of pop, pop that bubble of complacency. Well, speaking of trying to predict elections, maybe mm. we'll move on to the thing we're here to talk about. So you've mm. written a, a lovely book that I'm reading called Polling Unpacked, which I think your surname is particularly fortunate for. <laughs> So firstly, t- tell us about that, and then we've got some specific questions for you. So why did you write it? 
Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in opinion polls and I sort of first made my name, as it were, in a little way in the small corner of the polling world by maintaining a database of public voting intention opinion polls going all the way back to 1943, which I'm proud to say is the biggest that's like that. There are more polls you'll find in my records than you'll find on Wikipedia or you'll find in various sort of academic uh, collections and so on. Um, and that just got me yeah, interested in in polling and trying to figure out, you know, what you can learn from polls and the like. But particularly what it struck me when I was still thinking about, oh, I might quite like to have a go at writing another book is Nick Moon, about 25 years ago now, wrote a really good book that's a mix of history of polling and introduction to sort of polling as well, polling methodology, and that it's quite dated now. Uh, you know, it's not criticism of Nick's book in any way. But, you know, it is a book that's 25 years or so old, you know, off, you know does does show its age. And I think, frankly, had Nick you know, produced a second edition of that book a few years ago, I might well have felt that there wasn't really a gap for my book. So, so it's partly a sort of sense of, oh, actually, there's, there's a book that I would find interesting to read. And if it doesn't exist, well, maybe if I write it, other people would hopefully find it interesting to read. And the other thing is, and we'll maybe get into this a bit with the history of polling, is the basic story about the origin of political polling is told very frequently, but it's told very frequently with a quite a few sort of simplifications and quite a few glorifying of individuals who shouldn't necessarily be glorified and the like. And so it felt like there's a gap. You know, I wouldn't say my book is some great iconoclastic work of demolishing everything we knew about the history of polling before, but certainly I hope people would get quite a different story about the history of polling from what they would have got if they'd read, you know, a good political book previously that made reference to the origin of polling. So why don't we, let's do the history, history then. Mm. So when, because I'm, I'm very much enjoying your book and it, what's good about it, I think, is it's very accessible and takes one through a story. And I'm interested, why did you choose to start, your first chapter, I believe, is on the history. Why did you choose, choose to start there? Well, really because there's a lot of myths around George Gallup. So Gallup is, was one of the pioneers of modern political polling in the early 20th century. And he absolutely deserves a role as and a place in history as a really significant figure. But most histories of polling are very generous to him. And they tend to overlook both his contemporaries, who there were other people who were also introducing what we would now think of as modern scientific polling at the same time. They're often forgotten. The predecessors that they replaced, the previous methodologies that they pushed aside, often get a rather caricatured version of events in the history books that make them sound much more obviously dumb and stupid and bound to be replaced by modern techniques than actually is fair on them. Um, and also there is uh, a horrible black mark against Gallup of his methodology deliberately downplaying the views of blacks and of women. In America. And although he in some ways made some nods and had some reasons for doing that, they very quickly got forgotten when he talked about how his polling figures were showing people what the voice of America was and what the American public what, thought. And the, the caveats there should have been about the voice of white men in America were you know, barely, barely mentioned, barely noticed, barely made. And um, so there's a lot there, I think, you know, in amongst what is in some ways, a relatively familiar story. There's a lot of details there that I thought would be interesting to just 
get out there, you know, to dig into and learn a bit more myself. And then to hopefully, you know, I found that fascinating. Hopefully other people will as well. It's fascinating context to have around it. So we, uh, as as I mentioned um, before we started recording, talk a fair bit about polling on this podcast, normally mm. around kind of what the centre ground of opinion is. But we often, mm. we don't recap often about what polling is. So maybe you could help us do that and start from the beginning. So so what makes a poll a poll? What are they and, and why yeah. do they so quickly? So the first election that had what we would in some way recognise as polling was the 1824 American presidential election. And what was notable about that election was that for a variety of reasons, public opinion mattered much more than it had previously, partly because uh, the electorate was increasing in many American states, still a very restrictive electorate, you know, all sorts of issues about sexism and racism in terms of how the electorate was conceived and defined, but it was an increasing electorate. In addition, states were moving from having their electoral college votes in the presidential election being selected by their state assemblies and the like, but instead being determined by a vote of those people who did have the vote in their state. So that made the expression of those people who did have the vote all the more important. And also the previous party system, which had seen one party completely dominant and therefore in effect who it chose as its candidate, determined the outcome of the presidential election, that dominant party had its grip fracturing. So for all of those reasons, there was much more of a contest in 1824 and then more, and hence more of an interest in, well, who might be the most popular with the public. And so what started happening were straw polls where, you know, equivalent of a group of people getting together, often at, say, militia muster meetings, where you'd have a whole load of the adult white males in an area summoned to a militia muster meeting, and doing things like a show of hands as to who supports which presidential candidate. And you can just imagine like you might do in a place of work to get an informal sense of what people think. You know, so that sort of those, those shows of hands gave a bit of a sense of, of the public's opinion. And they were done on quite a wide scale. And newspapers started reporting the outcomes of these different straw polls. And straw, they were done in other ways as well as at militia muster meetings. And so that began to build up what was you know, more than anecdotal, but not quite as much as scientific, a sense of who was popular and who was not popular. And so that developed through the 19th century and into the early 20th century with other US elections as well. And particularly by the early 20th century, a magazine in America called the Literary Digest had a run of several US presidential elections where it did mammoth surveys, having literally millions of Americans take part. Um, and it used those to predict what the result would be of the US presidential election, and it got several US elections correct in a row, and it made a huge virtue of the fact that it was having millions of people taking part. However, it was doing things like posting out sort of response cards to the readers of the magazine, and so it was a very self-selecting sample in many ways. It wasn't a proper random sample of people, but it was a sample that was biased, as we would now understand it, in different ways. And then George Gallup, along with two others, uh, Crosley and Roper, who tend to be somewhat overlooked in this story, all three of them started doing what we would think of as modern scientific polling for the 1936 US presidential election. Uh, and they started trying to put together random samples. 
And so you had the self-selecting samples of the likes of Literary Digest, and you had the random samples of the trio of, of modern pollsters. And the Literary Digest predicted that in 1936, it would be a landslide Republican win. The three, the trio of modern scientific pollsters predicted that the Democrats would win quite handily, and they were right. George Gallup being the best self-publicist of the three <laughs> tends to get the accolades. But in fact, his polls were less accurate than the other two. And indeed, all, none of their polls were that brilliantly accurate. The key thing is they got the winner right when the Literary Digest and others were getting it wrong. But in an irony that often applies with political polling, if you get the winner right, but you're way off on the vote share, people tend not to really mind. So <laughs> even in that very first election where the modern pollsters claimed it was a transfer methodology, they definitely got the winner right, and they deserve huge credit for that. But one could already see some of the later controversies there would be over polling and how accurate it really might or might not be. So that it, it feels like, I mean, that's a great story, but it feels like there's a subtle key point in there. And you mentioned a survey by mm. literature, literature magazine versus a poll. And if I understood it right, it's the, the randomness or the representativeness of the sample that's the really key thing here. Yeah, the, the really important insight is that what matters is the quality rather than the size of your sample. Um, and just to think of a really simple example, imagine you were wanting to do a poll about maybe the Premier League and regulation of football or the football rules or something about how the game's operating. If you were to stand outside, say, the Emirates Stadium in North London on a Saturday afternoon, you would get loads of Arsenal fans, loads of fans of whoever Arsenal is playing that day, and almost no fans of any other football club. So even if you were to sample 50, 60, 70, 80,000 people, perhaps, going into the stadium, it, would, it wouldn't be a particularly good sample to understand football fans in general, because it would be so biased because of how you put it together. On the other hand, if you were to randomly select a thousand season ticket holders of different clubs from all across the country, much, much smaller sample, much, much better sample. Although if you're picking season ticket holders, that in itself would be a biased sample in other ways. But you can see how it's not just a question of how many people you talk to, but it's how you choose them that really matters. And what Literary Digest and others had fallen into was this trap of basically thinking more is better. And that was a change, a revolution that happened more generally in social science and that you see the tran you know, the transfer from the days of, I guess, if one goes way back, things like the Doomsday Book, where the idea was that in order to accurately know something, you have to try to count everything through to more modern methods where you understand that getting a representative sample is a really good way of counting something. So if you were doing, say, agricultural or rural research, if you wanted to know how many sheep there are in Wales, the old way of doing it would be to try to count every single sheep. But actually, that's really hard to do. And the modern way to do it would be to take some sort of sample and to extrapolate from the sample. So it, 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 there's a much wider issue about when do you get closest to the truth by trying to really count everything, and when actually is the best way to try to get close to the truth, to take a small but properly representative sample. And in the early days of political polling, by being properly representative, the way they tried to do that was by being random. So select random people from that population of people who have the vote in an election. 
But getting a truly random sample is really hard because, for example, different people have different levels of willingness to respond to pollsters. Some might be busier, some might be more suspicious of pollsters and so on. So over time, I think pollsters have got more and more accustomed to knowing that however hard they try to get a random sample, they're never really going to get a properly random sample. But what they can do is do other things, normally called quotas and waiting, to adjust their figures to make up for for the absence of randomness to try and still ensure that their sample is properly representative. And because that's always a tricky challenge, that's why yeah, pollsters continue to you know, have their good days and have their bad days, because sometimes they get their adjustments really bang on and they have really representative samples and they have great results, but not always. I really love the football example as a football fan. It it, <laughs> it really makes it clear how how that the, the the issue about sampling and counting comes in um i want to get into in a minute some of the reasons mm. why polls go wrong but i also wanted to sort of take a step back for the next question which is about the sort of inconsistency if that's the right word or fragility mm. of public opinion and and maybe just get you to talk about why that is a challenge when i suppose a challenge with your surveying or polling but, but a challenge particularly for polling yeah i mean most people most of the time don't think very much about politics and so there are some questions like asking people their voting intention where varying the wording of the question doesn't actually make that much of a difference most of the time uh, so if you look at the detailed wording that different pollsters use for their key voting intention question there's a bit of variation in the wording but it doesn't when there are differences between the pollsters, it's not because of they've they've picked different wording. Because if you basically say, look, you know, do, 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 are you happy with what the, how the government's doing or not? Most people, even if they don't follow politics closely, will have a bit of an initial gut feel of knowing what they think. However, if you get into an issue that people don't spend that much time thinking about, then the way you word the question can make a huge difference because you're priming people with a particular way of thinking about the issue or a particular set of the arguments when they're then suddenly thinking, oh, I've got this poll question, how am I going to answer it? Because people don't take very long to answer poll questions. Uh, you know, it, it's not like you get a question and then spend half an hour thinking about it before you answer it. The way polling happens, both online, telephone or face-to-face, -face, is a pretty quick, here's the question you give an answer, here's the question you give an answer. And so... A really good example of that in recent years was in the sort of debates between 2016 and 2019 about whether there should be a further, a second, a people's referendum on the terms of the Brexit deal or whether Brexit should go ahead. And so, you know, if you ask people who hadn't you know, given the issue a lot of thought about a question that implied, well, should there be a referendum to just check if you really got it right first time round? instinctive gut reactions often be no no of course not why would we have to do that again on the other hand if you phrase the question in a way that was more about well we didn't know the exact detail of what was going to happen last time so once we know the exact details should you be able to have a chance to check if you're still happy many more people saying yes and so i give some examples in the book of you know very different results you got uh from public opinion depending on how that second people's whatever referendum uh, was worded and 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 i think it's the, the 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 most puzzling example of this really is actually leader approval ratings this is one area where you get very different results depending on how you word the question and so it's why when you're looking at leader approval ratings 
it's really important to be consistent that you compare YouGov with YouGov or you compare Ipsos with Ipsos or you compare uh, Opinium with Opinium because they all use different wordings. And those wordings can produce surprisingly big, consistent differences in their answers. Um, and what all that comes back to is that most of the time people are not spending really very much of their brain power thinking about politics most people that is you and me may be accepted a little bit and perhaps some listeners accept it a little bit but most of the time not paying a huge amount of attention and therefore you know I mean I guess to extend the sporting analogy it's a bit like if you ask me some questions about the UCI the world governing body for road race cycling I'm a little bit of a fan of road race cycling I quite often watch the highlights on TV I listen to a couple of podcasts regularly but I'm not a diehard fan. And so if you were to ask me a question about the UCI and is the UCI well run or not, you could probably get yes or no as an answer from me, depending on just how you tweak the wording, even without having to get into ludicrously uh, leading questions. Um, because I don't think that much about the UCI and its administration most of the time. And for most of the rest of the public, politics falls into that category too. Um, and it's a great point because it's so easy to forget when you and I are constantly thinking about different matters of politics that most people have, well, should we just say better things to do? And and so much. Absolutely. Is- and, and, and I think it's it, that better is a really good word because sometimes people slip into thinking that, oh, the public are stupid. You see this quite often when uh, with the Times radio focus groups that they do once a month, which is a really interesting I mean, focus group rather than polls, so slightly different, but you know, adjacent form of intelligence as to what the public are thinking, adjacent form of insight. And you often see on Twitter uh, loads of people thinking, oh, my goodness, all these people in this focus group are so stupid. How do they not know X and Y? And actually, you know, people who don't know much about politics, if, say, they're a cricket fan, get them going on the intricacies excuse me, of the LBW rule and how it's changed and how maybe it should change in the future and famous incidents involving controversial leg before. Yeah, there's a huge amount of technical knowledge there. It's just they decide they prefer to spend their time on the technical knowledge about the LBW rule rather than the technical knowledge around, say, proroguing Parliament. Yeah, and that, and that's and that's very well put. Um, so let's get into probably what is the well related to the million dollar questions the million dollar question is can we trust the polls but let me frame it a different come at a different way because maybe not very recently but pretty recently and i'm thinking 2015 2017 pollsters have had a bad run it takes some flack um in the uk brexit was a big example in the us trump the other one there are many others so maybe could you touch on a bit about how polls maybe in those circumstances particularly went wrong um, yeah. and, why that's wrong. and so I, I think the polls didn't go maybe as wrong as your question implies in those elections. We can maybe come on to that in, in a moment. But broadly speaking, when the polls go wrong, it's because their attempts to get a representative sample in some way goes wrong. So as I mentioned earlier, it's you can't get a properly random sample. Too many people you know, will not you know, respond to to pollsters when they ask them and for and unless you've got a really big research budget to really try and track people down pick a random sample and then really try and track down those people you picked and really badger them until you get some answers from them so nearly all polls end up with a a moderately unrandom sample and then do adjustments to try and make it representative and some of those adjustments are relatively easy like making sure you've got the right proportion of men and women 
and so on. Others are quite difficult. And in particular, the political context can change in a way that means the adjustments that worked last time don't work this time. So, for example, uh, one of the things that has changed in both British and US politics in the last few years is there are much clearer the partisan support divides depending on people's level of education than they used to be. And hence, it didn't used to matter nearly as much if you ended up with a sample that had a bit too too many university graduates in or maybe too few university graduates in. Now, it's likely to matter much more. And so pollsters quite often risk getting caught out with, you know, well, OK, we have this system of waiting that worked at one election. Circumstances have changed and therefore they then discover, oh, bugger, that didn't work. That didn't work. Um, the other thing that can go wrong with polls is... Uh, I think people misunderstanding or placing too much certainty on results that should be taken with a bit of a pinch of salt. So the Brexit referendum in the UK is a really good example of that. But if you look at the polls overall in that Brexit referendum, you know, overall, they did seem to show remain ahead of leave, but by a small enough margin and a fragile enough margin in terms of some pollsters having a different picture and so on, that really part of what went wrong was people placed too much confidence in the conclusion, oh, the polls show that the Remain is definitely ahead than they should have. And certainly saying that with the advantage of hindsight, absolutely, yeah, there, there, there are a lot more signs of frailty there than, uh, than, than was really draw, drawn out in the coverage and the commentary at the time. Um, or to give another example, if you look at that, when Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton in the US presidential election. If you look at the national vote share polls for Trump and for Clinton and their vote shares and then compare the polls with the actual result, the polls were pretty good in 2016. If you had a table of US presidential elections and you know, difference between polls and actual candidate results in terms of national vote share, 2016 doesn't stand out as being a bad election. The polls said that Clinton would win the popular vote share by a few points and indeed she did. But crucially, the mistake that was made was there was a small number of state polls that were very badly off. And people were just sort of assumed, really, a bit too much, placed too much weight on, well, if Clinton's ahead nationally, surely she's bound to win the Electoral College. And again, in a sense, ahead of 2016, that was understandable, because only once previously and uh, in the last century or so, had the person who had won the popular vote not won the Electoral College. And that was the really weird and unusual circumstances of the Knife Edge 2000 general election, Gore, Gore versus Bush. So sort of thinking, well, if ever's ahead in national polls, they're bound to you know, end up being president, was a reasonable shortcut for people to make. And so although you know that was partly fed by polls being wrong, it was also partly fed by people placing too much confidence in the polls and, and not remembering you know, that even when polls are being pretty good and when they're being right most of the time, that's not quite the same as being right all of the time. So it sounds like, to attempt to summarise back, mm. a bit of an art to the science of adjusting mm. to random sample. And then what happens is um, commentators go over-interpret and over-predict and, and, and then that sounds more wrong than it really was. 
Yeah, and, and there's a few other ways other than the sampling problems and the representative problems that, that polls have gone wrong, but that is the sort of the dominant sort of technical one. So there have been problems where polls have, for example, stopped too far before polling day with their sampling. And if there's been a late swing, they've been caught out that way. So there are a few other things that go wrong as, as well. One of the one of the intriguing mysteries of polling is that when it does go wrong, it's a bit like a tightrope walker falling off the tightrope. It's very dramatic. And you sort of attempted to think, well, there must just be one thing that went wrong. They're just, you know, they took the wrong step. <laughs> they missed the tightrope and they fell, you know, well, hor horribly to the ground or hopefully into a safety net. And, but when you delve into the post-mortems that are carried out, it's normally a much more complicated picture in that normally what happens with polling, it's a bit like, and this is why I use the analogy of tightrope walking, is if you're a tightrope walker, I'm not one myself, but I understand the way that tightrope walkers get it right is that it's not that they're perfect. It's that almost like every step they take, something's going a bit wrong. Their balance is going a bit one way, their balance is going a bit the other way, but they keep on adjusting. And what undoes you as a tightrope walker is if you hit the bad luck of several errors, several mistakes, all piling up in the same direction. So you lean a little bit too far to the left by mistake, just as there is a gust of wind pushing you leftwards. And just as you sneeze and you've got your that tilts your head leftwards as well. And all three of those things are in the same direction. And that then takes you off the rope and into the safety net. Uh, Whilst most of the time, one thing might push you a little bit one way, but then there's something else that pushes you the other way. And it's similar with polls, that there's often the picture of why they've gone wrong isn't that there was one dramatic failing. It was, oh, yeah, that was the simple, simple sampling problem. It was that lots of little things added up, and by bad luck, they all added up in, or many of them added up in the same direction, and that added up to a noticeable error as opposed to a relatively small error that nobody was really bothered about. I like that both poles and tightrope walkers can accidentally lean left. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not so... sure what it says about me that I chose leaning left rather than <laughs> leaning right. Yeah, it was a good guy. The world was the other way. So we, I think most of the time we talk about polls, people mm. think, oh, it's, you know, who's ahead? Is it is it the Lab Dems, Labour or the Tories? Um, but there are also other polls. So... Other than voting intention polls, what do you make of things like most popular leader, best on the economy? Should we be paying attention to those two and any pitfalls particularly that impact them? Yeah. And voting intention polls are some of the toughest for pollsters because the difference between, say, a political party riding high and a political party doing really badly is quite small. Now, if... Um, the Tories poll, let's say, 44% at the next general election, that'll be a triumph. If they poll 36%, that'll be an absolute disaster. And that's a fairly small range of eight points between utter triumph and disaster. If you're doing polling about people's attitudes towards climate change, say, and you get a figure of 64%, you know, are really worried about it, does it really matter whether the true figure is 60% or 68%? That sort of range of eight points matters a lot less for most questions than it does for voting intention in a first-past-the-post uh, system in particular, but even even to, to, a, to a slightly lesser extent in PR systems as well. But particularly in, the, in a, in a say, first-past-the-post system, it can be a tiny margin of votes that makes a massive difference 
for the sort of result. So one of the advantages of looking beyond the, that simple headline to things like leader ratings and ratings on the economy and so on is that those figures, you know, are a bit more like that climate change example. That and 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 therefore, in a way, the the, the level of accuracy you can get from polling is is more attuned to giving you an interesting result on leader ratings because it doesn't matter so much if the truth is really a few points one way or the other out. The difficulty, though, is that you know, in the end, what most interests, I think, people is, well, who's going to be prime minister? Who's going to be in charge? And voting intention is the best thing to look at <laughs> to get a good sense of that. But there are circumstances in which other questions can be really intriguing. And certainly, if there's a consistent mismatch between voting intention on the one hand, and leader ratings or views of economic competence on the other, that can be a good clue that maybe public opinion might change or that the voting intention figures might be wrong. So that was one of the sort of warning signs that Max Singh, who was a pundit who got the polling sort of errors in 2015, he correctly predicted them ahead of time. That was one of the things that he was pointing to, saying, well, actually, look, if you look at the leader ratings, you look at ratings on the economy, the Tories seem to be doing rather better than than you might expect, giving the voting, you know, the voting intention figures. So maybe we're going to find out the voting intention figures are a bit off, as indeed it turned out to be the case. But the real problem, I think, with sort of getting too interested in those other measures and trying to use them as a proxy for voting intention is that there isn't a just sure and straightforward, you know, relationship that that they are a bit of a proxy, and therefore. If you want to know in the end who's going to win, voting intention is really the thing to look at. But that said, of course, there are other things, many other things that are of interest in politics. And in particular, if you aren't wanting to understand why a candidate or a party is ahead, then those other questions are absolutely invaluable in giving a richer sense of the picture. That's very, very interesting. Um, so in 2022, it feels like a theme is that technology is changing everything. So I'm mm. interested in the future of polling and how you know what what is changing now and i'm i'm very interested also to ask you about some of the modeling that's getting mm. polling so i've heard a lot about mrps for example i wonder if you could attempt a plain english explanation of of, of some of those kinds of methods yeah um so mrp is a form of sort of statistic modeling that was originally developed to try and extract sort of good quality insights from very large, low quality samples. And so one of the sort of initial pioneering papers in the development of MRP was looking at a whole load of uh, poll responses from uh, players of a particular gaming console. And so it was a very atypical sample, a you know, very skewed sample, because it was people who used this particular gaming console. But there was huge volumes of data, huge volumes of data. And so MRP was, in a sense, developed as almost what would a modern version of the Literary Digest use? You've got loads of data, but you know it's a skewed sample. Can we rescue some real insight from it? The way it's sort of developed for political polling and of particular interest you know, in a country like Britain with our first-past-the-post Westminster system and parliamentary constituencies is a way of trying to go from a you know a reasonably large but not massive national sample to predicting the results with a reasonable degree of accuracy in individual constituencies so using a lot of really clever modeling now mrp is 
I mean, had a really lucky debut on the British political scene, if one can personalise a methodology like that, because it really made its name in 2017. But in 2017, there were two MRP models. There was Lord Ashcroft's and there was YouGov's. YouGov's was the one that was splashed on the front page of the Times that gave the shock result that the Tories might lose their overall majority and turned out to be right. Lord Ashcroft's pointed didn't get very much publicity at all at the time and pointed to the Tories winning comfortably and turned out to be wrong. Uh, so it's it's a little, you know, if just a, if it just been the other way around, MRP would have had a debut and you know we would all be spending time saying, well, actually, despite the fact that it appears to be rubbish, maybe there is really some value in it somewhere. So MRP had a very lucky birth on the British political scene. And what that illustrates is because it involves very complex statistical modelling, there are a lot of things that can go wrong with it. And so I think MRP is hugely valuable after an election when you can say, OK, we know that it got the picture right. And then it allows you to explain in a lot more detail what happened, because the statistical modelling then allows you to really delve into the different sorts of voters in the different sorts of constituencies and the different sorts of political context and understand, therefore, why the result was what it was. But it's not a sort of a magic source of reliable brilliance that ahead of polling day means you can say, oh, look, I've got an MRP model, therefore these figures are better than you know, what you're getting from a national poll. In particular, because when polling has gone wrong in the UK, it's it's almost always been it's the vote shares are wrong. It's not been extrapolating from national vote shares to seat numbers. There has been a little bit of that with some exit polling at, at general elections where the extrapolation has ended up being done poorly. But basically, going from national vote figures to seat numbers isn't the thing where disaster beckons is getting the vote share figures right in the first place. And so although MRP is a much more sophisticated way of going from vote share to seat numbers, it's not actually in that sense tackling the thing that is the biggest risk for polling. But what it does do is it gives you that much richer story afterwards. Now, in the book, you have a chapter on alternatives to polling, mm. which is very interesting. So I'm particularly uh, interested to hear which of those you like and which you steer clear of. Uh, and the one that comes to mind for most people is Twitter polls. Maybe we could start oh, with Twitter polls. Do we have to talk about Twitter polls? <laughs> we don't, but maybe we I, well, the the um, actually the the thing that in that chapter most surprised me when I sat down to think, okay, let's work through what's the evidence here, etc. Is how good betting markets are, as long as people aren't paying too much attention to them. So let me unpack that a, a little bit. Um, the, there are betting markets on election results that are quite common for some countries, some sorts of elections and so on. And if you look at the matchup between what betting markets predict as to who's going to win and actual election results, it's a pretty good track record, except when you get into situations where either there's very little money in the market. And so the market is really dominated by people betting in a fun way that they want their their own side to win, etc. So it's, you know, you've not got enough liquidity in the market to really be generating insight beyond the initial sort of mix of tribalist fun. Or where the betting markets are getting a lot of attention and therefore there is scope, for example, to manipulate the betting markets. And we've seen this in things like party leadership elections, where you do get some surprising <laughs> movement sometimes in the prices. And again, you think, well, that may well be people 
putting money on to move the odds to generate then a story about political momentum. So a bit like, I mean, people and listeners who are used to uh, economics will know that this was often something that was a, a frustrating challenge for monetarists in the heyday of, of, sort of monetarism, uh, particularly in the 1980s, that it seemed like, you know, whenever you had a measure of the money supply that everyone started focusing on, it immediately then became a less useful measure to track. And in that sense, betting markets do have this paradoxical nature that if you can find betting markets that are reasonably flush with cash, but not getting much attention for their results. I was you know, genuinely quite surprised to, to, to look at the evidence and see how how good their track record can be. So the other one, and, and I'm, I'm actually just flicking through your chat to mm. look at different things you look at, but the other sort of more serious one is focus groups. So yeah. I suspect what you're going to say is focus groups aren't um, a sort of alternative to problem. Maybe you, maybe you could um, unpack mm. that as well. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're really a supplement. They're really uh, a way of getting more insight. The thing with a focus group is you'll typically have maybe eight or ten people in the focus group. Uh, and even if you do a series of focus groups, maybe you do five focus groups, well, that's still only 40 or 50 people. So the numbers of participants are very small compared to, say, a national voting intention poll, which will typically be one or 2,000 people. But what you do with a focus group is you ask a relatively small number of questions and get people to discuss them. And you can also give them things like visual prompts, like show them clips of different politicians speaking or show them different election posters and get reactions from there. And so I think focus groups are really useful as both a precursor and a sort of successor to polls. They're useful as a precursor to understand what are the things that might be on people's minds? What are the arguments that people might be thinking about to help then work out what the right questions are or the most useful questions are to put in the poll? And also, if you have a poll, to make use focus groups to help try and understand, well, why were the results of the poll what they were? So to give you an example, I think one of the things that quite often comes up when people are maybe slightly, maybe often maybe in a friendly way, but slightly mocking focus groups is the love of questions like, you know, if political party leaders were animals, which animal would they be? Which just seems a little bit bizarre, seems a bit sort of David Brent or the thick of it. But actually it can be really insightful. So certainly in focus groups during 2020, and I think it's still the case, um, that Best for Britain were doing, uh, sorry, not Best for Britain, um, Britain Thinks were doing, um, the answer in terms of what animal people associated Keir Starmer with was an eagle. And there's a lot of meaning bundled into that. An eagle is not, an eagle is admirable. I mean, yeah, eagles are... I don't know, bright, clever, strong. There's something positive about, you know, an eagle. Um, but it's not warm and cuddly. You know, you don't really think of, oh, isn't that a really cute pet eagle? You know, it, it's it's you don't have lots of photos of of cute eagles dominating, uh, you know, social media timelines and so on in the way that cute cats and cute dogs and cute pandas do. So it's not cute, but there are some positive attributes, but it's a bit aloof, a bit above the fray. And so getting people in a focus group to pick an animal is in a way a little bit daft, but actually is also a really good way, particularly for people who might not think that much about politics and and even if they do think about it a bit, might not be particularly skilled with the jargon or skilled with verbalising exactly why they think what they think. It's a great way of getting an instinctive sort of gut sense of what do you think about politicians. So focus groups have got lots of lots of value, but the really important thing to remember is the small number of people participating in any individual focus group 
and therefore the huge risk in reading too much into any one focus group. And it's always a good idea to you know draw, draw conclusions from more than just a single focus group. I'm very glad we ended up talking about Keir Starmer being an eagle because that's that's brought a smile to my face. Um, just on the Twitter, and I think this applies to letters to MPs, crowd sizes. I mean, I think the obvious answer there, of course, is that they're not representative samples. Mm. Uh, I think most listeners probably probably aware of that. Yeah, I, I think the thing to be aware of though is you can, and for example, MPs who are good at understanding their post bag. <coughs> definitely can get some insight from it because if you know how your post bag is likely to be skewed you can still gather some insight from it so a good example i think is that um you know many mps get a disproportionately large number of letters about animal welfare because there's quite a lot of people are concerned about animal welfare and are often very passionate about that and if you were to do a simple count of your post bag you might end up thinking that animal welfare was a bigger issue than it actually is overall for the electorate. But if once you know roughly how many letters to expect in it or emails these days to expect in a given week or a given month, if you then see a real variation in that trend, that could be very insightful. So at the moment, at the time that we're recording, there's some story in the news about how the government might cancel some of its animal welfare measures that the previous administration had planned around things like foie gras and the like. And so I think although extrapolating from an MP's email inbox this week to public opinion would be a bit risky, how much that issue has started hitting MPs, if you've got that context of knowing how much that those issues have been raised previously, can provide a bit of insight. So I think one of the things with a lot of poor quality sources of data is if you're savvy enough, you can still draw some insight from that. And in fact, therefore, I stuck in a section about how bad data can still give you good insights, partly because I realise that's something I've quite often done myself in the past. <laughs> but well, I should at least fess up to having relied on bad data, but also take the reader through some of the ways you can still, with caution and with care and with cross-checking, but you can still get some insight from bad data. Um, that's hugely fascinating. Um, and uh, I like the line, um, you know, good insights from bad data. Um, so we're coming towards the the end. And have, I thought I would put you to test a bit by throwing some mm. current polling at you and seeing whether you can help us uh, choose yeah. the pun for the book, unpack some of that. So... Let's. I, I'm as we speak. I'm, I'm. I'm scouring Twitter. So we've got one from some polling from Delta Poll. Uh, mm. This is the 16th to 20th September, and classic voting intentions. So let's see. Uh, Labour on 42. They've gone down by two points. The Conservatives have stayed still on 32. Uh, Lib Dems are plus one at 10 percent, and there's no other parties. So mm. what what should we make of that? If anything, that that kind of poll. Yeah. So. I mean, with Delta Poll, with their political polling, tend to ask very few questions. So their published polls normally are voting intention, occasionally leader ratings, but quite often nothing beyond that. Uh, sometimes they do have lots of other questions, particularly if they're doing it for a media client. But uh, but they, it, it, in that sense, it it's, tends to be relatively bare bones voting intention. So one thing to be aware of with Delta Poll is they tend to give the Liberal Democrats a slightly lower rating than other pollsters. Now, it's always tempting if it's your favourite party that a pollster gives a lower rating to, to think that therefore the pollster's wrong. 
not necessarily the case. Obviously, I am hoping that is the case uh, with Delta Pole at the moment, but that's one thing to be aware of. The other thing to be aware of is that Delta Pole is similar to pollsters like uh, Ipsos and YouGov, but crucially different from Kantar and Opinion. Kantar and Opinion at the moment have a methodology that consistently gives lower, uh, less favourable results uh, for Labour than other pollsters do. And so if, for example, you know, you're wanting to compare that that Delta poll with another poll, really important to not mix and match with opinion and Kantar, uh, because you could easily get a very misleading conclusion from that as a result. And so overall, because the different pollsters are getting slightly different results, mm. should we look at the poll of polls? Is there a way of kind of, would you go to the one you'd say is sort of got the the gold standard methodology what's the best way of getting a yeah i mean i do like averaging polls and polls of polls are quite useful but the problem is that an average take yeah treats all the different pollsters equally uh you know and you can do more sophisticated averaging than that and nate silver and the 538 crew in the us for example their 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 polling figures try to model you know rely past track records of pollsters and so on but fundamentally uh, if you take, say, people polling at the moment, very new outfit. Uh, they've only been up and running with their voting intention polls for a few weeks. Uh, the people behind it, I think it's I think they wouldn't mind me describing themselves as somewhat controversial. Uh, Matthew Goodwin, uh, the academic, is one of the one of the leading voices behind that. He is um, quite often in social media bum fights <laughs> and the like with others. Yeah, there's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of controversy around around his his views and how good or not people think his academic work and his polling work uh, is. And they also um, have had much worse ratings for the Tories than other pollsters. You know, they've, and in a way, that's slightly surprising, because if you look at the sort of political story that Matthew Goodwin normally tells, he, he his general approach is to say, that we should take the rise of populists much more seriously. We should look down on them much less, etc. He's often sort of taking the the non-liberal side in culture war type arguments and the like. So you might expect if a pollster like him was to be biased, they might actually end up being biased in favour of the Tories. So it's quite there's a certain interesting irony uh, in 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 his polling actually generally giving worse figures for the Tories. But is that because he's a new pollster? Is that because critics of him and the quality of his work are right? Or is it actually because he's he's the one that's out from the crowd looking at it in a new and different way? And he's he's actually right and everyone else is wrong. The problem with averaging different polls together is you average then his numbers in with everyone else's numbers. And it just sort of hides that. And, you know, you see this, as I said, with Opinion and Kantar at the moment. <coughs> they take a different approach to don't knows, essentially. From, from the other main pollsters, and as a result, they get different figures. I'm not sure how useful it really is to average, therefore, opinion in Kantar on the one hand with, say, Ipsos and YouGov and Delta Poll and other pollsters who will be tweeting at me in anger that I've not, not remembered to mention them just now <laughs> on the other. And, I mean, I do that, and, you know, it's useful in a way as a rough sort of measure over time, but there is a real limitation that you, you've got to remember that in doing that, you're sidestepping the questions that are probably the most interesting questions to ask. 
Yeah, so that, that that's great, but there's obviously no easy way, is there, of getting an answer. Right, the next one I'm going to throw at you is uh, not a voting intention one, it's a perception of a person. So very topically, mm. you guys have done some polling on perceptions of uh, figures in the monarchy. So I won't go through them all, mm. I'll go a few, but let's just take uh, King Charles. Uh, so he yeah. has his ratings as such, I don't know whether one should talk about the king's ratings, but are now up for 70%, um, and that is plus 16 from... The last poll. Um, what should we make of that? Yeah, I think this YouGov polling is fascinating. Uh, I think the YouGov polling I saw a couple of days ago may have been slightly different from the one you're looking at, but it was because it was net approval ratings for him. But it showed a huge jump in his net approval ratings following his ascension to the throne. Um, and what I find fascinating about that is it is not a surprise that he has become king. I mean, given to, you know, quite what an amazing old age, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth II lived to. I mean, it's literally true that for decades it's been the case that he might become king at any, you know, any moment in the near future. And so something that was highly predictable has happened. It's happened in a, you know, relatively straightforward, predictable way as well. Um. And yet the public public opinion has moved massively as a result. And so I think it's a really good example of how careful you need to be uh, if you're trying to use polls to tell you what the public might think at some point in the future. But what polling really excels at is telling you what people currently think, but predicting or asking people to predict about themselves how future events might move their views is a much trickier business. And so, uh, you know, in this case, it's happened with Prince Charles, uh, with Prince Charles becoming King Charles III. You see it also quite often with political uh, leaders who switch from being, say, leader of the opposition to becoming prime minister or from being, you know, a cabinet or shadow cabinet member to leader of their party, an initial boost in their ratings is a very common part of that. Even and when that's been a surprise victory, you might think, oh, well, that's the afterglow of pulling off a surprise victory. Of course, people rate them more highly. But what these Charles figures show is even when the change of situation is really predictable, you know, fairly you know, sad but unexceptional circumstances public opinion can still move a lot. And so, yeah, I, I think it's a great warning sign for us all. Yes, yes, in, 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 indeed. Um, so the final one, I think, is possibly a trickier one. Uh, and so now I'm looking at model. So mm. uh, this is Britain predicts a model update. So it's saying Labour majority of 30 and mm. pretty buzz through. So it's giving Labour 340 mm. seats. That's a Gosh, plus 140, Conservatives mm. just over 200, minus 160, uh, SNP 53, roughly the same, plus five, Lib Dems 25, plus 14, uh, and Plague Cymru plus one at five. Mm. So that's a brilliant prediction model. Um, so what, how should we interpret that? When was, I can't tell you when the field work was because I'm not, I'm not seeing it, but I think you can assume it's fairly recent. Yeah. So Britain predicts modelling is done by uh, Ben Walker for the New Statesman and Ben. Uh, you know, initially ran a really successful Twitter account full of great polling news and then has sort of segued from that into, uh, you know, definitely being a a sort of must read you know, journalist when he does, has pieces for the New Statesman on the state of the polls and the like. So he's definitely a smart, knowledgeable person. He has his own party politics. 
but I don't I think one would be hard pressed to try to spot any you know consistent partisan bias you know in in what he writes or how his models work so he's definitely somebody whose figures are worth worth paying attention to um but how much should one really trust the the cleverness of of his model well one thing to say and is that he's not modeled very many elections so his model has a relatively short you know, relatively thin track record. That's not a criticism. You know, one just has to, because general elections, even in the last few years, don't come around that often. One has to, you know, be in the modelling business for a heck of a long time to begin to have that much of a track record. So one is, we don't know how much track record there is. The other is that, broadly speaking, I think these models, um, when an election or a, you know, possible election result is fairly clear, are quite useful when it's potentially very close, that gets into the sort of thing that models are, find it really hard to get right. So if you take that Lib Dem figure, let's say that we could predict with absolute accuracy, absolute certainty, we've got this magic crystal ball, what the Lib Dem share of the vote will be at the next general election. Maybe let's go for 14%. Let's, let's indulge me by having the Lib Dems up a couple of points on last time in this example. How many seats is that going to translate to? Well, if you look at Lib Dem, <clears throat> the Lib Dem ability to turn vote share into seats at previous general elections, you know, running back over the last few decades, you could reasonably say that might be anything from a dozen MPs through to 30 plus MPs. You look at the sort of the, the, the vote, vote share to seat number ratio at different you know, general elections in the last few decades. Anything, you know, from a dozen to, to, to three dozen, essentially. And that makes quite a big difference to your possible projections of a Tory majority and the like, or a possible Labour majority uh, and the like, if if you've got a close result. But are the Lib Dems really going to get back to being much better at bucking the national trend in a handful of key target seats in the way that the party was, say, stunningly successful uh, in 1997? but disappointingly not so in 2019. That is about what's happening, a relatively small number of constituencies where national polling, even MRP modelling, doesn't really have the degree of resolution and confidence that one can conclude it, you know, conclude and say, oh yeah, this is definitely, definitely the case. So I think these sorts of models are useful for giving you a rough sense of what the polls mean, but one should always be careful about the apparent precision of, you know, I think the latest Britain Lex model gives the Tories 206 MPs. And my goodness, that sounds really precise. But it it's better to view that as that's way, way short of a decent result. You know, that's on the on the precipice of a historically catastrophic result. You know, that broader brush conclusion I think is the is is the one that's sensible to draw, even though it is great fun. And yeah, I I pay more attention than I should do to the details of these numbers. I'll plead guilty to that. And, you know, it can be great fun delving into the details and is the number up three or down four from last week and so on. Uh, but it can be a little bit of a mirage when you remember how many uncertainties there really are behind the numbers. Yeah, and you're dead right. It's 206 is the exact number, so it must be the one we're looking at. To bring our conversation full circle, I'm looking at the map on the I'm on Twitter. Mm. It is in the south of England indeed where... Mm. And around London is where they predict the Lib Dem seats. Um, there's no other obvious pattern, I think, to to pick out. Um, Mark, it's been wonderful and hugely insightful to have you on the podcast. Thank you for, for coming on. 
And uh, to listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, we are, of course, the No Man's Land podcast. Do please uh, share, um, tweet, retweet, etc. And I will give a final plug to Mark's book, Polling Unpacked. Um, Mark, where can you get the book? Yeah, it's been lovely chatting. Thank you so much for the plug for the book. You can get it from all good bookshops and from some not so good bookshops as well. And all of your favourite uh, online bookshops uh, should have it. You can get it from Amazon or if you prefer independent bookshops, bookshop.org and the likes of Waterstones and so on stock it too. If you're really lucky, if it's a really big branch of Waterstones, you might even find a copy on a shelf. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Mark. And uh, to everyone else, goodbye. <laughs>